Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about things in the Scriptures that make them become real to us and help us apply them to our lives better because we believe there's power in the Scriptures. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so excited to have back with us for a a repeat performance by demand, Avram Shannon, my or Shannon, my my friend uh, that uh, is a colleague here at BYU, and I know you've been with us before, Avram, but uh, uh, welcome, and I, I hope you'll tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, thanks so much. I appreciate that. I'm I'm very excited to be back, Carrie. Um, so I'm my name again. My name is Avram Shannon. I teach in the Department of Scripture here at BYU. I did my Again, my undergraduate in Hebrew Bible at BYU, Ancient Near Eastern Studies, did a degree um, in the United Kingdom, a master's degree over there, and then did a PhD in Nearest Languages and Cultures at The Ohio State University, where I kind of specialized in rabbinic literature and kind of rabbinic readings of scripture and things like that, to ancient Jewish readings of scripture. And I'm very, very excited. To and be we're here. just lucky to have you both here uh, in the department and on the program. Uh, Avram has so many wonderful insights. And uh, I know one thing, Avram, that uh, is meaningful to you, it is, is me as well, but I think you're uh, better at this than really anyone I know, is uh, understanding the law as given to the Israelites and, and what it does for them and what it should do for us. That's something that I think is very real for you that, that plays out in your life, and uh, I hope you can help that happen for all of us. So why don't you talk to us about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I mean, it's kind of a funny thing to realize about yourself, right? You know, I mean, we, you know, you go into the ancient stuff, you like the ancient world, I love Hebrew, etc. But I remember it was an experience I had where I was kind of working through the Old Testament, kind of working through some of these readings, and I had this starting realization that I got more spiritual benefit out of reading Leviticus than I was getting out of Isaiah. <laughs> and I said, okay, there's something um, here with this. And part of this is, is, is kind of a recognition of both what Isaiah is doing, what Leviticus is doing. But I mean, when we think about the law and kind of why I think it's important for it to be real to us is fundamentally the law is about lived religion. It's about how you interact with, how you understand your relationship with God and each other. Uh, kind of that's. I, I think that's wonderfully said, and I have to say this is part of why we're blood brothers. I can't tell you how many times I've been uh, doing a lecture, talking to someone to have a question. I say, well, okay, if we look at Leviticus, which I know was your favorite book, and everyone's like, why Leviticus? Why? But I, I turn to it again and again. I, I find it bears testimony of Christ. I, I, I talk about the atonement more in Leviticus than I do if I, in Matthew, say for example. Well, just numerically, this is this is your fun, um, your your fun fact takeaway. Um, for, for our viewers uh, and listeners today, the word atonement numerically appears in Leviticus more times than the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Prograde Price, and the New Testament yeah. combined. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, I mean, atonement, we'll talk a bit more about this maybe a little bit later. Atonement is absolutely a law of Moses and absolutely a, a temple and priestly yeah. word. Yeah, and 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 crucial, and I, and I'll also agree with you on this idea that uh, you know I always uh, think of this doctrine and covenants verse where God says He gives us instructions that we may know how to act before Him, that it may turn to us for our salvation. I and I think it, people think of commandments as restrictions, and, and but really God's telling us, no, this is how you should act. This is just the nuts and bolts of your life if you're going to become like me. 
Yeah. And, 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 and so this is actually, there's a couple of things with that that I think for me, actually, let's go to Dr. Covenant's 29. There, there's, there's, there's a verse there that really helps me in terms of thinking through sort of all commandments, but especially in thinking through what we're doing when we work through the law and work through historically as well as today. So Dr. Covenant's 2934. This is actually, I think, one of the most important verses in, in Doctrine and Covenants. At least, I like hmm. it best. But um, So there he says, the Lord had talked to Joseph Smith, Wherefore, verily I say unto you, that all things unto me are spiritual, and not at any time have I given unto you a law which was temporal. Neither any man, neither children of men, neither Adam your father whom I created. Sometimes as we read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or any commandment, word of wisdom, we're like, why do we have all these bizarre temporal commandments? Why does God care what our clothes are made of, to use a kind of yeah. you know specific example from, um, from the law? And I love what the Lord tells Joseph here. He says, look, guys, you're making a distinction I don't make. These aren't temporal commandments. I don't have any temporal commandments. I don't make any temporal commandments. There aren't any temporal commandments. He says, I never gave a temporal commandment. And so as we try and work through and understand what's going on in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, we need to, I think, to take God at his word and step out of this divide. That, oh, this is just a temporal thing. This is a, a temporal law. And saying, no, now wait a minute. That's not what God tells us it right. is. He tells us it's a spiritual law. And then say, okay, what is this doing spiritually? And and I think that's uh, where we have to start in thinking about. Um, well, perfect. Let, let, let start us there then. That sounds, sounds like right. a good place to jump off. Okay, so then, then, then I think, so when you have ancient law codes, and we have lots and lots of these from the Near East, we have them in Egypt. They're all over the Hittites, Mesopotamia, all kinds of ancient law codes. And there are elements of the of the laws in, in we see parts of these law codes and biblical scholars will attach, you know, this to this kind of law code, Neo-Assyrian, Hittite, all these various things. We're not going to do much with that. But these law codes always have, not always, but usually have a prologue. They have an explanation where they say, this is what the law is going to be. And for the um, for the law of Moses, which we'll see is actually God's law, but um, for for the law, the 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 prelude is Exodus 19, and that's in some ways Exodus 19 is, I'd argue, one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. I would agree. Um, maybe the entire standard works, but probably the uh, definitely the the Old Testament. And so, and so it's worth remembering as we think about Exodus, and we should always think about Exodus, uh, you know, it's Passover time. It's, you know, it's really, you know, we're, we're time to, it's time to be thinking about Exodus and remembering that as you read the Old Testament and even the Book of Mormon, it is really, really difficult to overstate the importance of the Exodus, hmm. right? This is when God saved Israel. I'll sometimes tell my students, tell people that the Old Testament authors and even the Book of Mormon authors talk about the Exodus the way that we talk about Jesus Christ's yeah. atonement. 
Yeah, and I'll even this is the saving event. Uh, sorry, sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, I, no. I'll even say that, like as you're saying, it's Passover and so on. And, and I always just kind of put Easter in there mentally in my mind, even though I know Passover and Easter are they're they're related because Easter happens at Passover. But uh, but I, I they're linked in my mind because they're the two great examples of God delivering us. Exodus looking forward to what Christ will do when He delivers us from Satan and and uh, death, but uh, but they are the, uh, the Exodus is the example God shows to say I can deliver you, so you should believe that I can deliver you when I suffer for you in Gethsemane, because you've already seen I deliver. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 again, it's no mistake that both Passover and then the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper, fundamentally the command is always remember. Um, because remembering that um, is, is then, and this is what then feeds into the law and the covenant. You begin by remembering, and, and, and that's how God starts here. So we're in Exodus 19. We'll do um, verse, um, just do verse 3 and 4 for starters, right? And Moses went to God, and the, and the Lord called him out of the mountain. Again, we should say, Lord, that is a Jehovah. Jehovah calls him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the children of Jacob, and tell the, to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. So the very first thing he says, he says, look, you, you were part of the Exodus. You saw this. You saw how I brought you here to Sinai. Exodus is, a, you know, we talk about the going out, and there's all, you know, the ten plagues, this great stuff. But the purpose of Exodus is to get them yeah. to Sinai. It's to get them here. He says, look, I brought you up. You're here. I brought you to myself. And now, therefore, this is verse 5, if ye will obey my covenant indeed, sorry, boy, now therefore, if you obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar people unto me above all people. Judge me above all people, for all the earth is mine. We'll talk about that in a second. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So this notion of being a peculiar treasure. Now, the Hebrew word here is mm -hmm. segula. And the image, again, we use peculiar in the modern English to mean, you know, weird yeah. or strange. And it may apply. <laughs> it may apply. But that's not what um, he's talking about here. It's peculiar in the sense of peculiar to or special yeah. to. And the image here is one of, of kings, right? Kings own everything, especially in the ancient world. They, you yeah. know, that's part of the, you know, they have all this stuff, they have all this whatever, but they don't, they can't spend, they oughtn't to, spend everything, right? There are armies to maintain, there are, um, you know, roads to build, there are palaces, temples, priests to pay. There's all this stuff that's supposed to be done with the, um, with the it's kind of like actually having a budget, yeah. right? I make my budget, I bring in however much money that I bring but of course, I've got to pay for the mortgage, and I got to pay for you know the electricity, and I got to pay for food. It's not like all the money I make is mine to spend. But as part of our budget, my wife and I give ourselves a portion of that that is ours to spend. Right. Um, that's our. That's it's, it's just there's no oversight in it. it. Doesn't go to the family. It's just ours to spend. That's what the segula is. He says the whole that this peculiar treasure. It says, the whole earth is mine. I'm, I'm God. But if you keep my covenant, then you'll be my privy purse. Yeah. 
you'll be my special treasure that's mine for myself yeah and and i like that 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 person that treasure that the word has in it you know connotations of a treasure but but that it's a treasure because of how rare or different it is right that's what's this is different yeah. than everything else and that's what makes it valuable is because it is different. So I think that that's part of what you're saying is, okay, we set this aside. We've got all the stuff, all this common stuff. This is different. Yeah, exactly. And then, and, and, and then the promise is just exactly with that. And, and, and this is why verse, um, verse six is why this is, I think one of the most important passages in I so agree. scripture. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I think we can say kingdom of priests and priestesses in our case. Yeah, Absolutely. Kings and queens, priests yeah. and priestesses. Let's just use um, Latter Saint language here because Joe Smith yeah. is going to. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but this is in some ways you want to look for a place for Joe Smith and Restoration Temple Doctrine. Exodus 19 is yeah. where it starts. And and so, and we'll, 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 but, but, but that's part of the whole point. This is when we talk about what the law and covenant are trying to do. It's very clear here in the prologue. God wants us to be kings and queens, priests and priestesses. God wants us to be a holy yeah. people. And the whole purpose of the covenant path, then and now, is to make his people a holy yes. people. And so... Again, talking about the social being set apart, peculiar treasure, that, that that whole setup of that is is right to bringing us right to this. He says, look, I'm going to make you something different. Yeah, so tell us, what what, what do you and think it be... means, holy people? What does that mean? Okay, and in some ways, that's the question that, that Israel's asking. So holy, at its core, means, again, in Scripture, the Hebrew word is kadosh, um, and it's various, um, yeah. you know, derivatives and variations and things like that. Um, and, and the idea of it is, is, is sort of set apart, yeah. right? Different. And specifically it's set apart for, for holy purposes. I'm not, for, for, set apart for God's purposes, mm -hmm. right? The idea is, is, and you find this all throughout. This is a major, major notion in the Hebrew Bible, the old Testament, and especially in the law and especially in Leviticus and, uh, and numbers, this idea of you've got to be holy. And, and as we think about what it means to be holy, let's first, let's go to Leviticus for a okay. second. And then we'll come back again, maybe not just for a second, but we'll come back to um, Leviticus. And let's read Leviticus 10.10. 10. Okay, so Leviticus 10 is this weird story where Aaron's sons, Nadab and um, Abihu, mm -hmm. uh, offer what the Bible calls strange fire. <laughs> We're not sure what strange fire is, but foreign fire is better. It looks like they're offering a, a non-approved kind of sacrifice to Jehovah. Yeah, and and I mean, it almost makes me wonder if they're offering something that's similar to what other people offer, but not what God has told them to offer. Right. That this is they seem to be. Um, I mean, again, the best bet is probably a sacrifice in a Canaanite or an Egyptian yeah, mode. Yeah, I think that's right. They're not supposed to. Um, and God kills yeah. them. Um, it's, 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 anyway. and then, and the, but then, but then he talks about this, but more importantly, he then says, he gives and he tells, um, to Aaron and Aaron's remaining sons, Ithamar and Eleazar, he says, okay, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Let me tell you what priests are supposed to be like. Let me tell you where your job is going to be a priest. He says, you don't drink 
Um, when you go into the comet, the tabernacle, that suggests maybe that there's something with that um, involved in the strange fire. But 10 and 11 in, in Leviticus are very important. That ye may put difference between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. And that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which Jehovah, which the Lord, has spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. This notion of putting difference, of making distinction. As we think about holiness, it's important to know holiness in the law of Moses is both a spiritual notion as well as a technical notion. I.e., there is, and, and this is important because one thing that we need to make very, very clear, and it's hard sometimes for us because it's such a useful symbol, ritual impurity is not the same thing as sin. Or spiritual impurity. Or spiritual yeah. impurity, right? You can be unclean under the law and have committed no sin yeah. at all. In fact, everyone is going that. to be unclean under the law lots of times, no matter what. Lots of times. It's it's just it's just part of the ordinary part yeah. of life, um, and this is important because and we'll, we'll kind of explain why the law makes you unclean. But but that's a really important thing to recognize because there's also sort of ritual formal holiness, and then there's sort of symbolic holiness um, as well. Right. And fundamentally, again, holiness are things that belong to God. And part of the idea behind this, and this is something that's um, intriguing, and I think we're thinking through, is this notion that the presence of the divine is a little bit dangerous. Mm. It's a little bit scary. It's a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, as was clearly demonstrated in Moses chapter 1, right? If we go way back exactly. to the beginning of this year, that was clearly demonstrated. I see that man is nothing. Yeah. I have to be changed we'll to withstand when, your presence. and We'll see it when we get to Isaiah, yeah. right? Isaiah, you know, Isaiah 6, I'm undone. Yeah. You know, Isaiah, see, this is not, you know, I'm glad to be in God's presence. Isaiah's like, how did I get here and what can I yeah. do? Yeah. Right? And so this idea that the presence of God is, is dangerous, and this is especially dangerous to the unprepared. Mm -hmm. Right? So, so Exodus 19 when they're preparing for the covenant, right? They're all around Mount Sinai, and God says, okay, you've got to get ready. If you're not ready, you're going to die. You've got to get ready. If you're not prepared, and this is, of course, the Book of Mormon makes a big deal about unclean things, presence of God, and it has a whole doctrinal um, run with it that's really quite nice, of course. But it's all based on this notion that the presence of God is dangerous to the unprepared. Yeah. And in Exodus 19, I mean, it's so dangerous. They say, okay, put, put a fence around there. Make sure no one goes through there. They're not ready yet. If they get, I, I want them to come through at some point, but if they come through right now, it's going to be a problem. Right. And that's the whole idea behind temples and holiness mm -hmm. then is to create boundaries and guardians so that you can be prepared so that you can be, so you don't burst into God's presence unprepared right. which if you think about it really that's the point of say the veil in in the well our temple as well but in, in the, the tabernacle or the the temple of solomon exactly. the veil is to protect god's holiness from our unholiness and us from god's holiness exactly and so this idea of successive um holiness and that's why again he tells um aaron eliezer nethamar he says okay 
your job as priests is to learn how to discern between what belongs in God's presence and what doesn't, what's ready, what's not, and to teach the children of Israel how mm. to do that. And so what we find then in lots of places, so one of the first things in the law is this notion of learning how to put things in their proper places. And by the way, this is, this is fun because the verb in Hebrew there that they use for, um, for to make distinction is lehavdil, which means to separate, make distinction. But where it gets cool is this is exactly the verb that they use in Genesis 1. When God separates light from darkness, when he separates waters from waters, when he separates waters from lands, this act of separation is an act of, of Havdalah. It's an act of, of making distinction. Good. And so the priestly process of learning how to make these distinctions, putting things in their proper place, is modeled in creation. Good. And they are being like God when they are learning how to put things in their proper places. Which is really what holiness is about, is learning to be like God. So, in fact, I would say we've talked about, and I 100% agree, that the root of, of holy is to be different, right? And, and even if you look at it, it's, it's not a cognate uh, equivalent in uh, Egyptian, but it's a, a semantic equivalent. It's, it's the same idea. Um, and the, the hieroglyph is an arm holding a knife. Uh, and it comes from the earliest places we see that used in Egyptian is when something is severed, like an umbilical cord is severed, so that now this is no longer part of that. It's something different. Or when the, the other time it's used is when earth was cut off from heaven so that the gods would not be with people anymore. They were going to be severed from each other. And, and one is holy and the other's not, right? But, but it's that idea of making separate. Um, but I, so I, I 100% agree with that. But I think if we were to just look at it a little bit more, I think it's, as you said, well, there, is a, there are actually a couple times, and I can't think of where they are right now, but I know I've found a couple times where, where uh, kadosh or holy in, in the Hebrew Bible is used to mean separate really, really bad. But 99% of the time, it's separate really, really good, right? And the idea right. is, I think, that, okay, this is what everything else is like, but I don't want you to be like everything else. You are going to be godly. Uh, that's the separation. Yeah. More like God, less like the world. Yeah, Leviticus eleven. Okay. Let's go there. Um, um, there's there's a key. I mean, this is this is this is part of this. And of course, Leviticus eleven. This is this is kosher law. Mm. I mean, not um, everyone knows what you mean by what kosher actually, law is, but so kosher law is the laws of what you can and can't eat in ancient Israel that are then developed into what you can and can't eat in yeah. Judaism. So. Their version so of the word of wisdom. Jews, their version yeah. of the word of wisdom. That's right. Um, and, and observant Jews will keep a version of this um, yeah. to this day. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit. Actually, Koshal actually speaks into this notion of there's a plan here in, um, in terms of how this works. But I want to I go to the end of it first, and then we'll go back and talk about it. But there in, in 44, for I am Jehovah, your God, Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, make yourselves holy, for and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. And this is the major, major theme, especially um, in these laws in Leviticus. God will give a law, and then he'll say, and you'll do this because you're to be holy, and you're to be holy because I am holy. Explicitly, these laws are about becoming more yes, like God. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, and I love the, the little add-on right at the end, you shall not defile, defile yourselves. And then he has some specific things they shouldn't defile themselves. But, but it's this idea of staying away from that so that you can be more like this, right? Right. And then, and, and again, and part of it, and then this is where this, where the ancient logic, and one of the things is a key thing. Again, the whole point of this is the whole podcast and whatever, and the great work you're doing, Carrie, this idea that the scriptures are real. And part of acknowledging the scriptures are real is we've got to acknowledge the Old Testament is an old hmm. book. And it's kind of a weird old book. <laughs> that's part of why it's yeah. real, right? If, if, if we make it like us, that's not making it more real. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can like and we can talk through. There's all kinds of great lessons to learn from it. But we need to recognize that it's old. And sometimes that means even their logic is a little bit different. Yeah, from they us. had a different way of thinking and viewing the world. They had a different way of thinking. And actually, a great example is actually here in Leviticus 11, where it, tar- where, where it talks about the forbidden animals. And on the list of forbidden birds are bats. <laughs> and you're like, and of course, the first response of it, again, I, I have a... Um, uh, my nine-year-old son is very much. These are the way things are, <laughs> right? And of course, you'll be you'll be the first to say, "Wait, but Dad, bats yeah. aren't birds." Like, well, of course, bats aren't birds. But the word for bird here is is oaf, which means flying things. They have a different taxonomy. Yeah. They're not categorizing things the yeah, same. It's not mammal or not. It's flying it's or not, not exactly. And so, with those different taxonomies putting things in their proper places. This explains why you could eat some animals and not in Leviticus 11. Because they have these categories. They're like, okay, land animals have to both have a cloven hoof and chew the cud. And so pigs are out because pigs have a cloven hoof. They don't actually, but it looks like it. From an ancient taxonomy perspective, that's fine, but they don't chew cud. And the idea is, is, the kinds of animals that are accepted on Leviticus are those that fit the proper categories. Right. If you if, if if you break categories, then then you're out. And so this is why, and actually, it's probably easy in the laws of fish. Fish have to have both fins and scales, because by the logic and taxonomic definition here, proper fish. Have both fish and scales, or fins, fins and scales. Uh, f- fins and scales. No fins, you're not a fish. No scales, you may look like a fish, you're not a fish. Yeah. So dolphins are so out. It's only those that are in the category. And again, it's not that they're bad, right? It's not that they're inappropriate. It's not any of these things. It's simply showing Israel the process symbolically of putting things in their proper places. Um, this is true of things why something like blood. Um, blood is a blood's a really important notion in the law mm-hmm. of Moses. And and some of that's gonna be symbolic for Jesus. Some of that's simply because um they say blood is mm-hmm. the life, right? And by that what, what they mean by that is is the blood is what makes you I guess it's where life is stored, is in your blood for the uh um, and, and when you lose it you stop living. Exactly. Um but blood outside the body can defile because part of this notion is making sure you put things in their proper places. Blood belongs inside, mm. not outside. Mm. And by the way, this is contextual. Um, so a, an example of this is, you know, you have your shoes 
right? And you look at your shoes, you know, and they're, they're not particularly dirty, right? If I were to take my shoes, go home, take them off, and put them on my wife's kitchen yep. table, she's going to say, get those dirty things off the table. Yeah. They weren't dirty when they were on the ground, but suddenly you change their context yep. and they're dirty. Yep. And so a lot of these notions of cleanness and uncleanness in the law are based on, on these notions of context. It's a logic based on in their proper places, they're fine. Outside, then they then they're ritually unclean. Mm. And so and 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 so that, and that that's the root behind kosher laws. That's the root behind so many of the impurity laws. Um, this notion that if things are have, have transgressed their boundaries and their improper place, the new context makes them unclean, makes them ritually dirty. Yeah, that's well said. So, but again, the symbolism here is trying to get Israel to know and to, to be thinking through this, right? Because again, back to our mess, back to Dr. Covenant 29, the whole idea is, is that there is nothing outside God's interests. Mm. And I think as we think through the covenant, we think through the laws, we think through the Ten Commandments, we do anything we do, um, is sometimes we want to put things outside of God. We say, okay, God, you can have this part of me. You can have my religious part. You can have me on Sundays, Wednesdays for my calling, an hour in the morning when I read scriptures, um, or whatever, how long you read scriptures for, 15 minutes, whatever, it doesn't matter. You can have me, you know, for an hour and a half on Monday nights when I do family home evening, and then, but you can't have me when I'm doing political discourse. Could, yeah. or, or watching and football. And you can't have me, or for, exactly, you can't have me at work. You can't have me, and we, we try and divide out these things. And God says, nah, everything, there is nothing outside of my interests. And so he makes laws in Leviticus about, hey, and in, and in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy, and in, you know, what kind of clothes can you wear? What kind of, what, what do you eat? He makes laws about how you treat people. What do you, what, so, so when you, when somebody works for you, the, the whole idea here is there's no sphere that he makes laws about kings. There is no sphere that is outside of God's interests and control. And so as we try and sort of keep part back, Remembering, and this is where the restoration comes in again. We have this notion, the Church of Christ Latter-day Saints, of consecration. And of course, consecration just means to make holy. Yeah, yeah, to set it aside, for, set it apart. Set yeah. aside, set it apart, set it aside, make yeah. it holy. That's what that's what we're yep. talking about. Yeah, well, you've got those same so roots, you know, sacred, holy, sacrate, consecrate, right? It's, it's all the same, part of the same idea. It's all part of the same idea. So when we're consecrating, literally what we're doing is we're saying we're taking this, making distinction, and saying that this now belongs mm. to God. And again, you go back to Exodus 19, where God says, I want you to be a holy people. 
I want you to, and, and everything we see after that, the whole thrust of the covenant from the Old Testament through to Joseph Smith, through to President Nelson and to us today is this process of making yes. us holy. It is no mistake, Dr. Covenant, the consecration is the law of the celestial kingdom. This is what we're trying to be. And we keep trying to hold stuff mm. back. And God keeps saying, no, 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 no. I need that yeah. too. Good. And and, and uh, again, I'll just add in there. So if we're going to say to make us holy, we can also say then to make us godly. And that's part of why he can't let us hold anything back. If if there's a part of you that you're saying, well, this part's not going to be godly, then in the end, you aren't godly. Yeah, right? And And that's our default position. We're fallen beings in a fallen world. So our default position is to be fallen or worldly. And God is trying to say that part has to go away. We're going to separate that out and kill it. And instead, what we'll create is something that's like me. And so the, the, the law in many ways ends up being this issue of, are you going to be like the rest of the world or are you going to be like God? And that's true for ancient Israel. It's true for us today as well. That's, that's what God is, is asking us all the time. You want to be like everyone else? Then you're not going to be godly and this isn't going to work for you. I want you to be different than everyone else because I want you to be like me, not like the fallen world. And again, and it's worth noting, even, even okay, something like the word of wisdom, a principle of mm. promise. Okay, there's parts in the word of wisdom that's definitely there to keep us healthier. Yeah. You know, the Lord's law of health, et cetera, et cetera. There are other parts of the word of wisdom that are definitely there just to make us yeah. different. Just to say, okay, you guys don't do this. This makes you yep. different, right? I mean, ever so often, you know, we try and say, oh, well, you know, nobody drank, you know, none of the wine in the Bible with alcohol, which, of course, is silly. Yeah. It's just not yeah. true. I mean, just, just, just from a purely historical perspective, it's not. But we're trying to say, well, this is something that's eternal rather than saying this is something that God has given us now to say this is to make you yeah. different. I want you to be something else. Yeah. And and uh, just along those lines, just as an example to kind of help make this real, uh, I'm sure you experienced this when you were you were at Oxford, right? Yeah, I was, and I, I was a visiting fellow at Oxford, so I'm sure you experienced it there. I just got back from Egypt, which had for a long time this British mandate period where they they got really inundated with a lot of British culture, and so in both places you're going to be offered tea all the time, and when you say I can't drink tea. They look at you like you have crawled out from some rock they've never heard of, right? I mean, what in the world? You can't drink tea? That's just weirder than weird. And But that's actually being peculiar, right? Yeah, no, exactly. It, and, and it marks you off. And then you say, okay, well, here's why and whatever. And yeah. In England, it's harder to explain. And yeah. in, in uh, Egypt or in, in Islam, Muslim country, I can say, well, like you can't eat pork or drink wine. I don't uh, drink wine or, or uh, drink tea. And they're like, oh, well, weird, but okay, I get it. Yeah. I just, you know, I'm just a stupid American. Yeah. So uh, you just have to, yeah. um, <laughs> that's it. But no, I mean, I mean, but, but this notion of, again, back to the peculiar people and this idea of being God's special treasure. That's what he wants. And that's what, that's what law is, is trying to do. Yeah. And that's helpful because honestly, sometimes, and this is a key thing as we think about it, all, I mentioned this um, previously, uh, uh, I mentioned it again, all scripture comes from a place in time, but also transcends it, hmm. right? I mean, Leviticus comes from antiquity. 
Exodus comes from antiquity. They they do things there. So, for example, you know, I'll come back to that. Just this notion that, uh, and this is important, because every time God reveals his truth, he reveals it on top of the existing mm-hmm. culture. I mean, just, yeah. you know, my, my our colleagues over in Church of Free and Doctrine can tell you all kinds of things that made their way into the Restoration because of the 19th century American context yeah. of the church. Yeah. But God speaks right? to us I in mean, our own language. Just, that includes just our cultural language, right? the way we understand the that's world. That's right. And, and because of that, it's always a little bit God imposing a, basically an alien culture, his culture, on top of the existing mm, culture. That's well said. And that means there are going to be some things that we do well and maybe better than the people we read in Scripture. And there are going to be some things that they are doing better than we're doing. And the whole goal is to like try and learn from both of them, right, Moroni's, that you can be wiser than we yeah. were. And work through those things. And so there's stuff we read in the law. There's stuff we read in Exodus that we don't have. We can acknowledge it as God's law and not have to condone it. Right. Well, you know, you read there things about the slave law. We don't have to say because God gave slave law, then therefore slaves are good. People tried to do that. It's terrible. Okay. We don't have to look to how it treats women. And say, oh, yeah, this is great. No, we don't have to do that. We can say, this is what they needed. This is what they understood. This is what God could give them. Here's what we're doing. And then also use that, I think, as a place to say, okay. So here are the places where they're struggling with God's culture imposed on their native culture. Where are we struggling? Good. So, in fact, particularly, say, with the slave life, I feel like, God took them where they were, and he gave them laws that are trying to get them to a different place. And it actually succeeds over a long period of time where slavery just dies out in Judaism. And the rabbis say, well, it's, it's easier to pay someone than to keep slave, right, if we're going to have to treat them the way God wants yeah. us to. And so then you have to ask yourself, okay, so what are the things where God is taking us where we are, and he's trying to get me to a different place? Uh, but we don't realize it because where we are just seems like the norm. Uh, it's yeah, and we have to, And we have to let God bring us to that different place. Yeah, I think that that's a key thing, right? Sometimes we're like, oh, well, you know, it's just cultural. And it, it may yet be just cultural. But the whole point of being cultural is you are culture. You can never get away from yeah. culture. I mean, I mean, sometimes we talk like we get, you just can't. It's just, it's, and the, like you say, the things that, we, that we're that we going to struggle with, we may not be able to see. Our, you know, our descendants and whatever, they'll look and they'll say, huh, yeah. that, that was maybe not the way God intended yeah. it. Yeah. And you're like, well... We were also yeah. trying. Yeah. But actually, there's, there's a great example, by the way, of, of Book of Mormon taking slave law and transforming it. This is really neat. So, so, so in um, the, there are three versions of slave law. Let's back up and talk about that for a second, and then we'll, um, about the three versions, then, we'll, then I'll talk about this cool thing in the Book of Mormon. Um, I like in reading the law of Moses sometimes to reading the handbook of instructions. Mm. Right. It's really, really important stuff. Right. And you can open up to the first page in the handbook and it talks about, I mean, there's this whole doctrinal statement about the purpose of the church is to help people come closer to Jesus and all this great stuff. Salvation of man. Right. And then you thumb through it and it's got, you know, five pages on using the name and logo of the church. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is still the important part. 
but this is what it's talking about. And in some ways, oftentimes, reading law is a little bit like that. Yeah. And one of the things we find as we um, look at antiquity is so just from a purely linguistic perspective, um, we don't see Hebrew as a language until about 1000 BC. Okay, I mean, that's just archaeologically, linguistically, Hebrew develops out of Proto-Canaanite at about 1000 BC. Yeah, or at least it's, it's, which it's is visible for, at, at that point, yeah. It's first attested yeah, yeah. there, um, which means we first see writing there at about 1000 BC. Um, and actually, there's, there's pretty good evidence that that's probably, again, about when we're seeing it. We see similar things happen with yeah. Aramaic. Which means that, and this is about the time in the Bible of David and mm -hmm. Solomon. Saul and David, I guess. Solomon's a little bit later, but Saul and David. Which means that Moses' native language is not Hebrew. I mean, that's just, again, because we date Moses three or four hundred years before that. Mm. Um, and his native language is probably Egyptian, but, yeah. you know, but there's also whatever. The Israelites are speaking. Whatever they speak, whatever Proto-Canaanite dialect they're speaking, or however you, you want to do with that, it's not Hebrew the way it comes down to us in, in the Old Testament. Okay? Which means that all of our stuff from Genesis through about 1 Samuel is going to be translation literature or literature based on oral yeah. traditions. Okay? That's just the nature of, of antiquity. And for you and I who grew up in a world of compulsory education where we presume literacy, right? I can write on a board and presume that everybody's going to read what I'm saying. Right. But that's not the way in antiquity. Some cultures had more or less um, literacy, but you're not going to expect, you know, in, in a place like Egypt where it's just a, it's a technical skill, yeah. right? We have to be part of the guild to be able to read anything. Yeah. No, no, it's a, it's a minute percentage that can read. Which means that what you have is law is then lived and promulgated in an oral environment. Mm. I mean, that's just, I mean, everything mm. is. It's what you tell, it's how you do that. Um, and so sometimes in, um, as you read the law in the scriptures, you'll get sort of different instantations of it. Different times and places where people presented it. They're clearly talking about the same thing, but it's progress, you know, it's, 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 God gave Moses a law on Mount Sinai. No questions about that. God revealed law to Moses in glory. And I, again, it's funny the things that you develop testimonies of. Hmm. One of the things I've got a testimony of is, is God talking to Moses on Mount Sinai. Yeah. I just, I, I, again, a spiritual witness of something. It, it doesn't matter to a lot of people, but it mattered to me, right? right? And I was, um, but with that, then, we know that they were living the law, again, throughout time. Um, and so what you have then is sometimes in Leviticus, you'll, or sometimes in Leviticus, Numbers, especially Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, you'll find different versions of the same kind of right, law. Right. So, and, and, and it's kind of like, the way I think about it, back to the Habakkuk Instructions one, it's kind of like if you published the Habakkuk Instructions and you published the 2020 revision alongside the 2000s version, alongside the 1980 version. Right, right. It's all coming from the same place. And you can oftentimes still see this is the same policy. Right. But how it's expressed is sometimes a little bit different. And quite often because circumstances have changed and sometimes because understanding has changed. Exactly. 
And 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 we we, we should never say that in nineteen eighties that wasn't inspired. Right. Even though we may do it, we can see it differently in 2020. Yeah, yeah. home teaching was great when it was home teaching, and ministering is great now, and that was inspired, but I think we're in a better place, and let's keep going forward, right? It's true. And and, and home teaching was great when it was ward yep. teaching. When it was great when, yep. you know, I mean, you know, I mean, and so, and so when you find, and this is an important thing, because sometimes as you read the Old Testament, you'll find different laws, and you'll say, but didn't it say this here? Like, well, yeah, it did. But they're different instantations of the law being expressed. Um, and so so the version of of the um the law for slaves in Leviticus is very is different a little bit from Deuteronomy and, and Exodus. But where it's most intriguing is the reason it gives. okay? So Leviticus says you actually can't make Israelite slaves. Um, Exodus and Deuteronomy say you can, but they go free after seven years. Leviticus is actually legal fiction because Leviticus says this is Leviticus twenty five because you can't make them slaves, but you can make them indentured servants for seven years. They're not slaves, yeah. but yeah. I mean, it's the same yeah. law. And this this is an example of, of the shifting. It's the exact same law, but things have changed. But where it gets interesting is is Leviticus says here. Let's go Leviticus twenty five. This is cool. Leviticus 25, verse, um, oh, I've lost it here. Ah, there they are. Leviticus 25, um, verse 42. For they are my servants. And by the way, the word in um, Hebrew for servant and slave is mm -hmm. the same thing. It's not why you can't make them um, slaves in the same way. Which I brought for the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as bondmen. So God says, he says, he says, you can't make them slaves because they're already my yep. slaves. I already bought them. They already serve yep. I, me. I purchased them and they're mine. Yeah. Which then, this is where it gets fun. Because then you get to King Benjamin. Who starts talking about us. The whole thing begins about, he says, you guys can't be slaves. Whenever you're in the service of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of God. Remembering this verb to serve God, vad, is the same as for is being yep. a slave. Service, servitude, servant. We make a distinction in English. There's no distinction in Hebrew. There, there may be a distinction in King Benjamin's language. We can't know. Yeah. Um, but I, as I read it there in in um, Mosiah, Mosiah two through five, there's this sense that he's playing with this notion, right? He says. Leviticus 25 says, you are God's slaves. And then Benjamin says, you are God's yeah. slaves. And what? And what's more, you guys are terrible slaves. <laughs> God is the best master. You guys are awful slaves. You guys, you know, he, he gives you your breath. He creates you. Everything he does. And you, you're still unprofitable servants. Yep. But then, and this is where I think Benjamin is great. And then he goes through... And we're, we're back to um, this notion of holiness. He's got the thing there in Mosiah 3, which the angel talks to him, talks about the natural man being enemy mm -hmm. to God. This is a very Book of Mormon turn. But then he says, you know, he says, but, you know, natural man is an enemy to God and will be forever and ever unless he yields 
So he entices the Holy Spirit and becomes yeah. a saint. Or a holy one. Or a holy one. The word saint comes from, it, uh, it comes from Latin sanctus, yep. the, the, the holy yep. ones. Yeah. If the he were speaking Hebrew uh, or a, a kind of derived version thereof, it would be the word for being holy. Yeah. It would sound like Kedushim, yeah. something like that. Exactly. So you become a saint. You become one of God's holy ones, humble, submissive, and then yielding like a child yields to its father. And then he goes through and he's, you know, he says, have you made this covenant? That, well, yes, we've made this covenant. He says, good. Now you're the children of God. And there's this powerful movement, this process of sanctification. In the middle there, you start off as unprofitable slaves. And then you yield and you become saints. You become holy. And suddenly you're transformed and you're the children of God. And, and thus heirs. But, yeah. And thus heirs. You're no longer slave. He bought yep. you. But through the process of sanctification, through the process of holiness, you've become the children you've of God. you become part of the family. you become part of the family also. Yeah. And, and so it's, and I love, this is, this is a great example, by the way, of how the Book of Mormon is so firmly rooted, at least in this portion, in the Law of Moses. Um, it's very clear that Benjamin is taking ideas from Leviticus and using them to teach the Israelites, the, the Nephites, about what it means to become the children of God. And it's anyway, powerful it stuff. It there. really is. I, I, and I love, I, I, I just love the idea that in both cases, they're drawing on this idea of leaving behind uh, the world, as it were, again, leaving behind uh, servitude or whatever else. Uh, and taking advantage of the opportunity that God is giving you to become something different, and that something different is like Him, which is inherent in the idea of being a child or an heir. Right? That that the child can become like the parent, uh, and so that's only possible because you've put off the natural man uh, uh, through a covenant. Right? You, you, he, that right. gives you the transformative power to become something different. But remember that in the covenant, the primary obligation is to keep the commandments. So it, it all circles around each other. We're going to take advantage of the transformation of Christ, the atonement that you're, we're about to talk about, that atoning power. But it only happens if we are following God's instructions and separating in these categories you've been talking about. Yeah. Which is why, by the way, I love, I mean, we call it the law of Moses and that's, that, that's fine. But I prefer to call it the Sinai yeah. Covenant. Um one, because he says, he, he says, you know, I make this covenant. And by the way, this is a great example of God's pattern, right? He tells Israel, he says, I'm going to make you, you know, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, if you do what I say. And Israel then says, yeah, we'll do what you say. Sight unseen. Yeah, yeah they don't know what it is yet. Right? They don't know what it is yet. They don't know. They say, yeah, we'll do what which, you say. Which uh, we do at and, baptism and the, as well, by the way. I just interviewed two eight-year-olds, and they're so willing. They have no idea what they're actually getting themselves into, but they're willing. It's true. Or, honestly, even the endowment. Yeah. Or marriage. We sit up there We sit up there, and we say, we, we, we literally say, now you're going to have to, um, to um, do, um, you're going to promise to do things. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to, but you're going to do things. But I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, but you're going to have to promise things. Yeah. And we say, yeah, yeah, we'll do yep. that. Um, and this is God's pattern. Yep. It's, 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 he wants us to trust him. Uh, yep. It's good um, stuff. And so, and so anyway, it's really, um, 
And I appreciate the Israelites saying, yeah, we'll do this. And then the whole rest of the law is really the stipulations yep. of the covenant. In fact, biblical scholars call all this stuff that's given right in that section the covenant code, right? I mean, this is this is what you do as your part of the covenant. Yeah, you and 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 again, and it jumps right into the Ten Commandments, where once again God says, he reminds him of Egypt, yeah. and then says, "You got to pick me first. Yep. This notion of of no other gods, and of course, I mean, this is an Old Testament year. We're going to see lots of idolatry. I wrote, I wrote my dissertation on, on rabbinic notions of idolatry. Um, fun stuff with that. But the core idea behind it is still one of consecration. Mm. You have to pick God first. First and yep. only. You give up everything else and only him. Or it's that covenant as, relationship. As President Nelson would put it, you let him prevail in your life. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and the whole thing is then just decided all around, all around that. And again, some things seem, some things seem to come from antiquity. Sometimes we misunderstand them, right? The whole eye for an eye, tooth for tooth thing. We're like, oh, that just sounds yeah, terrible yeah. and mean. But of course, it's worth remembering. In antiquity, the idea is it's a clause. It's not a clause. It's a clause against escalation. Right. In fact, I would probably, if I were translating it, you know, put a branch on the in a notion of only. Right, rather than saying an eye, it's only an eye for an eye, and only a tooth for a tooth. Yeah. Right, if we get in a fist fight for whatever reason, Carrie and I, and I, you know, and Carrie punches out my tooth, yeah. I can't then turn around and gouge out Carrie's eye because it's it's about yeah. parity. Only an eye for an eye, only a tooth for a tooth, rather than saying, "Oh, you have to take an eye for an eye, you have to take a tooth." You're always allowed to take less, always. God, that's a good point. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that's a very good point. Ah, good. So, um, but let's talk about the sacrificial good. system. Because that's kind of, and one thing to remember is, as we talk about the sacrificial system, as as Christians, we have correctly a very Christ-centered view of the sacrificial system, right? Jesus Christ's great and last sacrifice. The Book of Mormon does all kinds of fun things with this. There's all kinds of great stuff in terms of that with the sacrifices, but sometimes we almost create, it's really easy to see how a male unblemished lamb is a symbol of Jesus mm. Christ. It's harder sometimes to see how a female cow or a, or a you handful know, of meal or a handful of meal or any of the other number of things that are, you know, or a bird with its neck twisted, yeah. right? You know, and it, it, the sacrificial system is much more complex. We, can, we can't just say, we can say the sacrificial system points to Jesus. But we can't, we, we need to be careful saying that every sacrifice is a symbolic representation of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Because, one, I just, it's actually a little bit like when we think about our own ordinances, Right. You think about something like baptism, right? And you're talking about, you know, interviewing eight year olds for baptism, you know, and you ask them, you know, why you're being baptized. And they kind of look yeah, at you. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they, my, my daughter turns eight in, in about a month and a half. And, you know, you're we kind of having these conversations yeah. with her. And she's just like, because Jesus? Yep, yep, got, you know, that's that's the, uh, but, you know, you kind of coax out the answers. You, you, you go to Mosiah 18. And Mosiah 18 says, right, you know, you do it to enter the covenant community. Yep. 
Okay? Great reason to be baptized. Yeah, to be God's but people. But that's not the reason. Yeah, yeah. That's not the reason that Paul gives to be baptized. All right, you read Paul, and Paul talks about being baptized. One, he talks about being a symbol of resurrection. And then he talks in other places about, you know, Paul, Article 4, baptized for remission of sins. And suddenly you have entering a covenant community, you have symbol of the resurrection, you have um, remission of sins. And suddenly you go to um, you go to Second um, Nephi thirty two or thirty one, and suddenly you're being baptized to fulfill all righteousness to, because of what Jesus yep. did, and you're obeying commandments to be baptized. And then you you know you look and you see something like um, related to covenant community, but membership in formal church organization. And suddenly you realize that there's lots of reasons to get baptized. We kind of put them all in one. And actually, you can even see this more clearly, right? Um, we have evidence. You see it in the Book of Mormon. You also see it in early church history. There were people who were baptized before April 6th, 1830, mm-hmm. who were then rebaptized after April yeah. 6th. They'd been previously baptized for remission of sins. They were rebaptized for membership yep. of the church because there wasn't a church yep. here. And so with the, the reason I'm bringing this up here is we can do the same thing with the sacrificial system. It does point to Jesus Christ, and we'll talk extensively about that, but it does other things in itself as well. And, 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 and so any, any, any good ordinance, any good ritual is going to have both internal reading as well as um, other meanings with it too. So, so for example, um, a great example of this is, is what's called, in Hebrew, the Ola. Um, what is it? In KGV, it's burnt yeah. offering. Um, this is the whole burnt offering. So most of the offerings, the um, priests got a portion of them to eat. Um, most of them, and actually this was how the priests were often mm-hmm. supported, is by support from general tithes, but also from eating from the yeah, sacrifices. where a lot of their meals came from. Yeah, you, you were making meat. Yep. The whole burnt offering was different. They still got, they got the skin. Um, because for the it's called the whole burnt offering because you burnt the whole thing. You took and and remembering in the ancient world that the ancient Israelites were primarily agripastoralists, by which I mean their livelihood was primarily going to be in their flocks and in their um, crops, in their crops, um, but especially the sacrificial system in there, and and so. When we talk about sacrificing and what you sacrifice, okay, the whole burnt offering, you gave it all. And you got from it in this world, nothing. Yeah, I mean, there are offerings Um, where you were able to eat of the offering. And so this was just a way to, to uh, well, it's not just a way, but it's uh, it's something that you give to God, but you also get to eat of your flock, and so that's handy. But this one there's zero that comes back to you in terms of, of uh, in this life, right? Well, maybe not, maybe that's not the right way to say it. You get things in this life as well, but in terms of what you usually get out of an animal when you kill it, you get none of that. Right. It's, it's the functional equivalent of taking a stack of hundred dollar bills, lighting it on fire and saying, God, that's yeah. for you. Yeah. <laughs> that's what yep. you're doing. And, and it, it, it's really interesting 
Um, especially in terms of, as I, you know, I've talked through things, trying to teach my kids about paying tithing. And they're like, why? What does God do with the money? Well, you know, he, you know, he, you know, keeps lights on in buildings. He pays, but he pays my salary. Yeah. He, uh, you know, you know, there, there, there are various things that, 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 you know, we do with tithing. And they go, okay, whatever. But in the case of the whole burnt offering, they're like, he doesn't do anything with it. Yep. He smells the sweet savor and says, now I know you love me. He always knew that. But again, the purpose of the sacrifice is the whole burnt offering is fundamentally to show your willingness to just give things mm -hmm. to God. And by the way, we have evidence from non later, not not Israelite period, but from we have we have Greco-Roman authors who think this is the weirdest thing in the world. They're like, you're just throwing away the animal. <laughs> the gods don't need it, right? It's, 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 they, they, we have that. They're just like, what is this? Um, and in some ways, that's that's a distinctive part of the sacrifice system. Because again, like you say, for most of the system, you get something out yeah. of it. Both the priests, whatever. There's some part of it. There's some part in the system. The whole burnt offering, you're literally just burning it up and saying, this is mm -hmm. yours, God. Um. And, and there's, there's, there's an amazing transformation of submissiveness that happens from something like that. Right. Which, to go back yeah. to your idea about submitting or yielding to God, right? Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you're saying that, that this thing I have that would give me money, it would give me whatever. It's just yours. And, and there, there, and there, there, and of course, part of it, as you read, um, the sacrificial system, the various sacrificial parts have different reasons and things they're for. Um, and, you know, they're for, they're for reconciliation in the community. Therefore, sometimes it's honestly just because you want to have meat and you want to give God his portion too when mm -hmm. you're eating meat, right? There, there, there's a whole um, category of offering that's designed just for that. But sometimes they're because you've committed this in inadvertently. Right. And and you need to make reparation for that. Yeah, yeah. you didn't right? know that this is what you were doing, and exactly. but you were doing it nonetheless. You know, but, but and and so you're like, okay, God's like, okay, it's fine. There's a place for this, um, and you offer it. And it's actually not, it's, it's not a very large sacrifice because again, part of it, like you said, with the, you know, sometimes it's because you've acquired ritual cleanliness. Your ritual cleanliness is, is done, and and again, there are lots of things that um, that acquire ritual cleanliness dead bodies, right? Say your father dies. Yep. You're responsible for taking care of your father. This is a laudable thing in the law. But you're going to require, um, you're going to acquire, um, um, it's called tend uncleanliness, but um, you're going to acquire death uncleanliness as part of that. And it's not, it's, it's laudable what you're doing, but you're no longer ritually pure. Your time is up. You've buried your father. And you go and you um, um, you offer your sacrifice yeah. for that. And different diseases and wounds and things that are the natural process of life uh, make everyone unclean. And I think there's actually a tremendous yeah. lesson uh, symbolically here, and, and maybe this is me reading uh, into it what I, I want to, but I, I, I think there's a profound lesson in that everyone, so under the law of Moses, everyone becomes unclean, ritually unclean, frequently. But that's yes. okay. It's expected that it will happen to everyone, and it's built into the system how to overcome that. 
And it's equally true that everyone in this life will be spiritually unclean frequently. We're fallen beings. Just that makes us spiritually unclean. And then because we're, you know, the way it says it in in Moses 6, because we're conceived by sinful beings, then we conceive of sin, right? And so then we go out and sin. But that's okay. It's built into the system. There is a way to be cleansed from that. And sometimes people beat themselves up for having yeah. sinned or having done something. And I mean, we should beat ourselves up just enough to say, I'm not going to do that anymore, but that's about it. It's built in. God knew it was going to happen. Just like he knew that someone was going to uh, eventually have a disease and be unclean and come into contact with death and be unclean. He knows you're going to sin and he built it into the system, how to overcome it. We call it repentance and the, the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Just the president Nelson said, some people think repentance is a terrible thing. No, we should look forward to it. It's, it's the system. Yeah. It's like going and making a trespass offering. You know it's going to happen. You try and, and avoid it, but when it happens, okay, built into the system, let's let's do what we're supposed to do and move on. Thank you, God, that we can. I think that's, again, I think that's beautiful. And I, and I think that helps us better understand sometimes, you know, what's going on with the law, what's going on with ourselves. This idea that, it, again, like you say, it's just built into the system and we shouldn't worry again don't do it but you're gonna do it so so when you do feel guilty enough make the sacrifice enough to try and do better next time and again and i think i think to to use the law as our example the problem is would not be whatever you did that made you liable for trespass off the problem would be not bringing the trespass that's exactly right it's if you don't say okay this happened I need to do this to get things right again. That's that's the problem. And and I'd say that's one of the major messages of the Old Testament, actually. The, everyone messes yeah. up. The question is, are you going to say, okay, I'm coming back, God. I, I messed up, but I'm going to come back to you. And uh, I, God, we know he's going to accept us. The, the only question is, are we going to get up and, and come back to him and try again? And I think that's exactly what the law of Moses is teaching us. Absolutely. You compare, you, you compare, again, from a previous whatever, right? You compare Adam and Eve's response. They're, they have their excuses. They're a little scared, yeah, yeah. right? But you compare that to Cain's belligerency. Yeah. Where Cain's like, I, I have no reason to do anything. Wait, who are yeah. you anyway? Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Why, why should I answer to you? So here's another question I have for you. I, I, I have always read the law this way and then given it my interpretation. I'd like to know both in terms of uh, if I'm reading the law correctly and uh, what you would think of my interpretation, but uh, and and it touches on what we were just talking about. But for uh, not for everything, for some things, there's no substitute. The, the Passover it has to be an unblemished lamb. There's there's no substitute for that. That's what it is, and there's no way around it. Not at all. But for lots of things, it's supposed to be this animal. But if you don't, if you can't bring that, then you bring something lesser. And if you can't bring that, you bring all the way down to well, then just bring a handful of flour, right? If that's what you can bring, that's what you can bring. Um, And so that's the part I I, I mean, again, not everything, but most things can be that way. And I want to see if your understanding matches mine in that. Uh, And then to me, this I feel like sometimes uh, God asks uh, things of us and uh, he may ask us all to do something in this calling. And some people can bring a big, magnificent bullock to that calling. And other people can bring a handful of flour. And it doesn't really matter to God. He's just asking you, bring what you've got. I'll accept it. 
if you now if you can afford a bullock and you bring a handful of flour now i've got a little problem but if if sure, if yeah. all you are if all you're capable of is a handful of flour no problem I, I, God will accept that. And in another situation, you might be the one with a bullock and, and the other guy, right? So for example, if you're going to uh, ask uh, me to maybe teach a, a class, I can bring at least a, a decent lamb to that, right? Uh, and someone else in my ward may not. But if the question is, uh, who's going to sing the solo, I'm bringing a thimble full of flour to that whole offering, right? And and someone else in my ward is going to bring a magnificent bullock, and and that's okay. God accepts what we have, and uh, it's built into the system that we do that, and and it's all good. Yeah, I think I think a comparison of that New Testament example might be something like the um, the parable of the entrusted yeah, talents. Yeah. Right. Where you've got you've got, you know, the five talents, the two talents, the one talent, according to their several abilities, yep. it says. Right. But what I find very compelling is the reward for the person with two talents ends up with four talents. The reward with five talents ends up with ten talents is identical. Yep. Right. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy. You know, be able to a few things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Even though. The person with two talents ends up with less than the first one started yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But that's not the point. The Lord is less concerned with what you have than what you do with yeah. it. And that's an important point because I find a lot of people. We're in a world where it's an, as natural fallen men. We always compare ourselves, but we're especially in a social media world where comparison gets to be a pretty big game. And, uh, and we, we're always going to lose. If we're going to start comparing, we're always going to lose because there's always something better at whatever we're comparing than, than how we are. That's true. And uh, I think that God really is trying to tell us, just forget about that. I'm not asking whether you – so, all right, let's, let's name one that we're all going to lose. I'm not asking whether you can learn languages uh, and, uh, and repair hearts the same way President Nelson can, right? Very few people have the full package the way he does, right? Uh, and yeah. and that's not the question. I think that uh, my uh, wife's uh, grandparents, who were Idaho potato farmers, uh, but were some of the most pure people I know, uh, and President Nelson will stack up pretty well. In the end, they, they both brought what they had, and God's going to accept it. And I think with that, the other thing about this, this notion of, of whatever – is we need to be very, very careful in deciding whether somebody else, and by careful, I mean we shouldn't yeah. do it at all, but very careful in deciding whether somebody else is bringing a bullock or a thimble full. Yeah, of yeah not our job. Right? Every so often we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, they're, and they're like, well, but, but you don't know what yeah. they have. You don't know what they need. You don't know what their hearts are. You don't know what they, you, you don't know. Or what's know. going on in their life where maybe yesterday, they could have done this and today they can't you you can't yeah. know it's sometimes like you know you know we, we're giving 100 percent. like this may be their 100 yeah. percent. if they're struggling with with depression anxiety it may be just getting out of bed yeah. this morning was 100 yeah. yeah if they were up with it the baby was, all night last night and they got up today then that's their 100 percent. it was and, and, and in fact it was in the in god's eyes they brought a giant bullock and you've got a couple of yeah. birds, and um, stop comparing your birds to their yeah. bullock. Oh, yeah. there. I agree. That reminds me of 
uh, Elder Uchtdorf's talk about giving your all. So, yeah. Yeah. And so I just, I think sometimes, again, as we sort of spiritualize this a little bit, um, we need to be very careful because we do, we make, we, we, we make assumptions about what people are bringing for their all and we just don't know what their all yeah. looks like. Yeah. Well said. Well, good. All right. Well, is there uh, anything else you'd like to throw into this? We should talk about okay. atonement before we, I agree. Uh, at least Let's atonement. So I've mentioned before atonement is, and again, in, in the church today, we use atonement as almost a generic mm. word for God's whole saving, you know, everything, Jesus Christ, redemption, resurrection. Again, it's, you know, uh, around Easter time here as we're recording this. Um, and again, there's powerful reason for that. But that's not how scripture uses mm -hmm. atonement. Scripture is much more limited in its use of atonement. We, we use it generically. They use it very, very specifically. And and that's that's a, 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 and, and it is primarily focused, again, of the however many times it appears, um, almost all of them are in the Old mm -hmm. Testament. And almost all of those are in Leviticus and Numbers. Yeah. Um, this is because atonement translates a word that's primarily a word of interest to, to priests and to the temple system and to this idea and a sacrifice and these kinds of things. It's, 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 it's a temple word. It's a priestly yes. word. Um, and like most things, it's a technical word. Like most things in Leviticus and Numbers, um, the, the core roots, I mean, it, it, it's kafar. You've probably, you may have heard the term, I mean, you have, our, our listeners may have heard the term um, Yom Kippur, mm -hmm. um, that means, it means Day of Atonement. The core meaning of it is, I mean, the root means something like cover. Um, but it's more than just that, right? And that's, I mean, it, it, it's covering, and this is part of why, you know, we coined, the, the, you know, why it was coins to be, you know, for atonement because we're trying to get a word that sort of expresses this notion of what the concept does. And, and it's this notion of, of, of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. It's this notion of bringing back into proper relationship. And when we talk about, again, the, it, uh, throughout the sacrificial system, it'll talk about this sacrifice makes atonement. And, and this sacrifice, and then the priest makes atonement for himself. The priests make atonement for the people. The sacrifice makes atonement for the tabernacle and, and, and for everything. Yeah, for the tabernacle and it's it's and back to this notion of things in their proper mm -hmm. places. Atonement is about bringing things back in line with the way God wants them to Good. be. Really, that's what we're we're seeing here when it atones. It 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 resets and sets things right. Uh, very good. And in fact, maybe um, just uh, before you keep going with that, just to tie into some other yeah. things we've talked about in the podcast earlier, uh, I did one on the the plagues and so on. I talked about the Egyptian idea of ma'at, right? But that everything is yeah. created in its proper place and then it gets out of joint. And the, the job of religion and the king and everything is always to try and get it back to the way it should be. And I've actually compared that to the idea of, of the, the way most often the word judgment is used and it's to try and yeah. put things the way they should be for people who they are not how they ought to be. You're trying to get them back. In it. And so that may be that this person is wrong, that person. So you have to do judgment to, to get it back to right. But it may just be that that person is poor and can't feed themselves. And that's not right. So you need to get them in a position where they can eat and, and hopefully feed themselves. Uh, but this is a, a, 
uh, a theme that we've come against a number of times, and it has to do with the fall, really, that because yeah. of the fall, things are not how they should be. And we're trying to, that's exactly right. They're not in those categories. It's not aligned the way it should be. And we're trying to get it back there. But the great thing about our view, as opposed to so many other, I mean, this concept is all over the place. It's Pono and Hawaiian. It's all over the place. But, But our view is it's not just getting it back. When we get it back, we want it to be in a higher, holier state, right? We don't want it to be how it was in the Garden of Eden, where things were wonderful, but Adam and Eve were not godly. We want right. it to be back to where we're in a celestial state, not an Edenic state, where we are in a godly state. Uh, and and I think atonement covers both of those ideas. Yes. And 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 this, of course, is where, just as a brief aside, where the Book of Mormon is going to take yes. it. Right? I'm actually currently working on a piece right now where I can show that everywhere the Book of Mormon uses the word atonement is in a priestly or temple context. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's all in the book of Mormon. It's, it's also not a generic term. It's a very, very Jacob uses it. You know, it, it shows up in these, in yeah. these priestly, um, King contexts. Benjamin at the temple and so on. Yeah. King Benjamin, at the temple. It's, it's these places where it's, it's, and it's about it, precisely this. It's about getting things right. But then, but then Jacob says, that's why Jacob says, therefore, and this is the distinctly book of Mormon turn. Therefore it must be an infinite mm. atonement. Jacob's a priest. He's like, look, I do atonement all the time, guys. This is my job. Atonement's what I do. But this atonement that God himself is going to do, that's a little bit Mm -hmm. different. That's infinite. That's bigger. That's going to be something different. And then Amnesty is the same thing, right? It's going to be, you know, it's not a sacrifice of beasts or humans or whatever. It has to be... An infinite and eternal sacrifice. Good, good. And to go back to, to what you were just talking about a little bit uh, a second ago, I find it interesting that uh, not only is Jacob the one who really uh, kind of hits this idea of atonement in this this priestly uh, context really hard early on, he's also the one that starts to introduce this idea of reconcile and reconciliation because they they go hand right. in hand, right? They they they. At which again. Uh, I think it was President Nelson that first uh, got me to think about this, but reconcile means to sit again with, right? But it, to, to bring things together again. Right. And and I really think as you as you read and as we read and, and, and work through what's going on in, in, in the law of Moses and the sacrifice and in atonement, the whole idea is, is you've got to be right before God. You know, it's, 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 as Latter-day Saints, because of the Book of Mormon, we love, correctly, we love that idea of a broken heart and a contrite mm-hmm. spirit, right? And, but what someone's like, you know, the sacrifices then were, were a broken heart and a contrite spirit. I mean, we were, were animals, and now we do a broken heart and contrite spirits. But of course, the sacrifices were always yeah. a broken heart and a contrite spirit. You know, it, it's worth noting that, you know, they're quoting, the Book of Mormon is quoting Psalm 51, let me find that real quick. It's such a powerful thing. Yeah, it's and it's a beautiful oh. psalm. While you're finding it, maybe maybe psalm. let me put it this way because I think this is part of what you're talking about. Uh, we just made a reference to home teaching as opposed to ministering, and and I have to say when I heard the changes to ministering, I really thought, huh, I thought that's what we were always doing anyway. I thought that's what home teaching. Yeah. And I think it was. This is what home teaching was always supposed to be about. We're just kind of being more explicit and changing the program a little bit and so on. And I would say the exact same thing about what you're saying, that the, the law of Moses, the sacrifices in the law of Moses were really always about a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That, that's, 
So the, 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 when God says it that way, it's a little bit like changing from home teaching to ministering. Well, it's what you were supposed to be doing anyway. We just hope you're now at the point where we can all do it a little bit more and a little bit better. Yeah. And again, so, 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 you know, verse um, 51, six, I mean, it's just, the whole thing's just beautiful. Um, you know, wash me. I acknowledge my transgression. Open my lips. Verse 16, though. For thou desirest not sacrifice. And we're like, and people are like, oh, see, God doesn't actually want to animal sacrifice. I'm like, no, 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 wait a minute. Else I would give it. That desires not um, in burnt offering. 17. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh, heart, oh God, thou will not despise. And you're like, okay, you know, this, this is the whole thing there. God wants broken heart. and the, But then he goes on and he says, they're at 19. And then... Then shalt thou be pleased with sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and the whole burnt offering. And then shall thou, they offer bullocks upon thine altar. He says, look, if you want a sacrifice, I give you sacrifice. You want a broken heart. Here's my broken heart. And then you'll take my uh, my other sacrifice. And it's, it's, and it's important because because we don't do it it can be easy for us to kind of, oh, poo-poo, animal sacrifice or whatever. One, it's worth noting that animal sacrifice predates the law of Moses by oh, a lot. Yep, by since Adam, so yes. <laughs> right. So, so like, you know, that this is clearly the way that God understood that people worshiped God for... For men. most of the history of the world. I mean, far far longer yeah, than no. we haven't. Yes. And, and so... And so but with that, but the message still is, and this is the key thing, God's sacrifices always require us because what he wants is us. We're back to being a holy people. We're back to being um, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We never actually left yeah. it. But what God wants, and so the whole sacrifice, the whole motion of atonement, all the reconciliation, the whole, all the blood, all the stuff, is just to get us. And and fundamentally, that's what he wants. Good. Which is why, again, um, Deuteronomy 6. Um, this, of course, it's, it's part of this. It's no mistake. When Jesus Christ is asked the great commandments, he quotes the law yeah. of Moses. I mean, in, in, in one case, it's explicit. They ask him about the great commandments in the law. Yeah. But, you know, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbors yourself. Deuteronomy 6, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength. This and there's is, our uh, plug. That's Luke's version of it. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, there's our plug for Leviticus again. That's what he quotes from when he's giving the answer. But anyway, sorry. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But but I love this because he says, you know, again, this is, and by the way, Deuteronomy 6, um, 3 and following, this is, this is the mm -hmm. Shema, right? The Shema is one of the most important prayers even in modern Judaism, right? Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, right? Listen to God. Your God is, uh, you know, Jehovah's our God. He's one um, God. We love your God. But then I, but I, we, Jesus quotes that, but we shouldn't stop there. And the, this is verse six. And these words I command you should be in your hearts. And by the way, in ancient Israel, as in ancient Egypt, um, the heart is not just, it's not the emotional um, organ. It's it's the, the it's 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 the organ of volition, right? You think with your heart. You yeah, you think and choose. You think and choose. Yeah, the heart is 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 is, is the side of will. It's not just so, so. Having words in your heart is not just I feel good about these. This is this is going to be who yeah, you are. Yeah. 
Um, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto your children. And you shall talk with them when thou sittest in thine house. And thou walkest in the way. And when thou liest down, and thou rise up. And thou shalt bind them as a sign on thine hand. And frontless before thine eyes. We, you know, we talk about tefillin, whatever. Those are the boxes, you know, yeah. for uh, with that. The New Testament calls them phylacteries. We'll get there in a second. And you shall write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. I love this. Because he's like, what I want you to do is I want you to have me and my love and my commandments and my covenants all the time. Teach your kids. When you get up in the morning, talk about them. When you go to bed, talk about them. When you um, you know, when you go outside, talk about them. When you come inside, talk about them. When you when you look in the mirror, have them in your face. When you look down, there they are. When you're door, there they. This idea of the wholeness of it, and that you're never ever. God says, never stop talking about me. Never stop talking about my covenants. That's what he wants. That's what, um, and in some ways, I mean, again, this comes right off of love the Lord your God. That's what he yep. means. Nothing is outside of him because everything, he wants all of you, and he's going to give you all of him. That's so beautifully said. That is so beautifully said. I, I can't think of a better place or way to end. That is what it's all about. Um, uh, thank you. Avram, thank you very much. I, I feel more inspired to, not just in terms of the law, but in terms of every aspect of my life, to make it about my relationship with God and to completely give myself to Him so that I can per- completely partake of Him in my life to become godly, to become like Him through what I do and largely through the atoning sacrifice of His Son. Just thank you that you've inspired me. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks for inviting yeah. me. I, I love God and I love the law. It's power. It, it, it's powerful stuff. It is. It really is. Uh, well, I, I think our audience will love this as well, and I hope that they'll share it with others uh, and uh, spread the word. We just want everyone to feel the power of the scriptures, and especially when they point us um, through laws and covenants to God. What, what more can we ask? So thank you, and uh, have a great week. Yeah.